Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we pray that you would enliven uh, the words of Scripture and the words of this sermon for the life and the good of your people. Do this by your overshadowing spirit who indwells us and fill us up anew this morning. And may you produce in us life for your kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, go ahead and take out your prayer books and turn with me to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. uh, That's found on page 446. Page 446. And if someone takes the prayer book and there's not one left, you can go ahead and grab the ESV Bible too. That'll work. This morning, we're concluding our sermon series on the appointed Psalms during the season of Lent. As we've come to see, each psalm gives us a gift for our Lenten journey to the cross and to the tomb of Jesus, to Good Friday and Holy Saturday. Last week, we received the gift of the Good Shepherd, not the safe shepherd from Psalm 23. For Jesus, the Good Shepherd, does not promise us that life will be safe or that we will avoid suffering, darkness, and death. Like Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's not safe, but he's good. He promises to be with us, to protect and guide us through and out of the dark and deathly valleys that we inevitably face in this life. In Psalm 130, we find the psalmist in one such dark and deathly valley. Just listen to him in verse 1. Out of the deep have I called to you O Lord. This translation, though adequate, flattens out the depth of emotion here. It's better rendered in this way. Out of the depths of the watery abyss, I cry out, I scream to you, O Lord. The psalmist here switches metaphors from that that was used in Psalm 23. He's not a sheep in a dark and deathly valley. Rather, he describes his life as being in the midst of the deepest darkest and most life-threatening sea. The depths of the watery abyss capture well those moments and seasons in our lives when everything seems to speak against God. Maybe like those times that Mary and Martha experienced around Lazarus' death. These are the times when our hearts cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When evil, darkness, and death appear to have the dominant advantage in our lives and in this world. These are the moments and seasons when we can no longer pretend that we are capable of avoiding the ravages of this sin-twisted world or the ravages of our own sin-twisted hearts. We can't avoid seeing the wreckage at times here and there of our lives and the destruction of a world bent and twisted by sin. Broken relationships, failed marriages, strained relationships with parents, evil destruction throughout the world, the corruption of life, anti-God systems at work. We see it all around us. And the psalmist acknowledges here in verse 3 that sin is the root. It's the root reason for his location in the depths. And indeed, we could say even the location of humanity in the depths. If you, Lord, were to mark what is done amiss, verse 3, O Lord, who could abide? 
Who could endure it? Who could stand in the presence of a holy God any moment of time? That's his point. The word translated here as what is done amiss describes sin not only as that which is bent or twisted, but it also includes the damage its twistedness creates and the consequences that it threatens. It describes the flood of wrong and its aftermath that sweeps over our lives like an unforgiving torrent and from which there is no escape apart from a sure and steady anchor. A sure and steady anchor to which we can be tethered amid the flood, amid the deep and chaotic waters of a broken world. This is the gift that Psalm 130 gives to us. It gives us the gift of a sacred anchor for the soul. And that's indeed how St. John Chrysostom describes or captures God here in Psalm 130, a sacred anchor for the soul. Now, if God is the psalmist, sacred anchor, and if he is our sacred anchor, then prayer is the anchor line that tethers us to him. Prayer is the anchor line that tethers us to him. So don't glide over the direction the object of the psalmist's cry, he cries out to God. He cries out to God. When everything in life appears or seems to speak against God, the psalmist speaks to God. That's no small feat. That's a hugely profound, even in the midst of profound doubts, At times, not only the psalmist in 130, but elsewhere, certainly in the book of Lamentations, the authors in the midst of doubt, in the midst of pain and suffering, cry out to God when everything speaks against him. In a moment of desperate clarity, the psalmist remembers his sacred anchor and he tethers his life to him by tying a knot by tying a knot, as it were, through his prayerful cry. He sees his anchor. He gets clarity for one moment, and he wants to latch his life onto the anchor. The knot he uses to tether his life to the anchor is confession. Listen again to verse 3. If you, O Lord, were to mark what is done amiss, O Lord, who could abide it? Who could stand? Throughout the Psalter, but especially in the last fifth of the Psalter, the image that's used most often of God is the God of the heavens. And here in Psalm 130, the psalmist situates himself at the depths, the deep, at the bottom. There is this massive chasm, as it were, between God and him. He's disconnected from his God, his sacred anchor. They seem to be worlds of part, and the distance between them could appear in that moment to be insurmountable. Yet even in the face of that, the psalmist still cries out to God in confession. And it's a general confession. Nothing specific is laid out here. We don't know if he's referring to his own sin or to the sin of humanity in general. His point is being, who among us can stand? There is none righteous, no, not one, is his point. And when he does so, when he turns to the Lord in confession, when he acknowledges the sin-damaged relationship between God and humanity in general and his own sin-damaged relationship with God in particular, he knows that God hears his cry no matter how far away he may seem. 
He knows that God will mend and restore the damaged anchor line. He cries expectantly, knowing that God will hear. God will indeed restore relationship and communion with him. But how can this be? How can the psalmist be so confident in God in the midst of a situation that by all accounts on the surface would seem to speak against God? How can we be confident that God will do likewise for us, that he will hear our cry when we find ourselves in a similar situation, or that he will even respond to that cry? Look at verse 4. For there is mercy with you. The word here is is the word forgiveness. There is forgiveness with you. And verse 7. God has three companions here. Forgiveness. Then verse 7. For with the Lord there is mercy. The word here is chesed. We become familiar with that word in these psalms. This is his unfailing loving kindness. For with the Lord there is forgiveness. Verse 7, with the Lord there is his unfailing loving kindness. And with him is plenteous redemption. Full, complete redemption. Nothing left unredeemed. The only answer to sin and its consequences whether in our lives or around this globe in this marred creation, is the Lord's complete redemption. That is the only answer, is his complete redemption. And that is accomplished by his never-ending, unfailing, loving kindness, his faithfulness, his loyalty to his people and to his creation that makes possible his offer of forgiveness. That makes possible... His offer of forgiveness. In the depths, the psalmist remembers that God is deeper than the deepest depths in humanity. He remembers that he is deeper than the deepest depths in humanity. He will hear your cry. He is holier than your deepest sin. And so the psalmist encourages us to think more of the depth of God's love than the depth of our sin. More about the depth of God's love than the depths from which we cry out because He is greater than our sin. Is this not what St. Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 5 when he says, where sin increased, where the depths become more and more real, grace abounded all the more. Every time Paul found himself in sin, every time he found himself in the depths, he found God's grace there. And that grace, far outstripping his sin, far outstripping the wounds of a broken world. God's grace can go deeper than your sin. His unfailing loving kindness knows no bounds. And that is good news for us. Because he can meet you wherever you are. Whatever you've done. Whatever's been done to you. He can meet you there. From wherever you cry out. 
You cannot sink beyond. You cannot sink down beyond where his love is not ready and willing and capable to restore you and to bring you home. As we approach Holy Week, as we approach Holy Week, nothing demonstrates the unfailing loving kindness of God more than Jesus' incarnation. God taking on human flesh, entering into our depths, entering into the darkest, deepest, most life-threatening sea with us. He entered and subjected himself to the ravages of a sin-twisted world. And on the cross, Jesus descended to the depths where he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what it's like to be there. He knows what it's like to feel the world. The way Eugene Peterson translates this in the message is at the bottom, the bottom of my life has fallen out. Jesus knows what it's like to be in that spot. He experienced it in the depths of the cross. And he experienced those depths so that you and I do not have to stay there. We don't have to stay in the depths. He died so that he might meet us in our deadness. As St. Paul so boldly declares and so beautifully describes in Ephesians chapter 2. When he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God being rich in mercy. Now this sounds like he was reading Psalm 130, I think. But God, who being rich in mercy because of his great love, is that not his hesed love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were locked into the depths, made us alive together with Christ? By grace you have been saved. And not only that, he also raised us up with him and seated us now with God in the heavenly places. The God of the heavens. We have a seat beside our Father. And we sit there in Jesus Christ, as Paul says. And having met us in the depths, he raises us up to experience complete redemption now. Complete and utter redemption. Nothing spared. He does not merely forgive your sins. His unfailing loving kindness offers us so much more than that. It certainly doesn't offer us anything less than that, but it offers us so much more than that. He promises to redeem us completely from slavery to sin and death and to completely restore us and make us whole again. We'll hear this when it comes either to Good Friday or Easter Vigil. I haven't decided yet. I'm going to read from a homily on Holy Saturday where it so vividly portrays Christ entering hell descending to the dead, and taking back Adam and Eve. Making them whole. Restoring them again. The fullness of this redemption means that to be forgiven, to be initiated into the life of, of God's new creation kingdom is to be transferred from one script, one story, one narrative, the narrative of death-dealing sin, of the depths, 
where life has no other recourse but to stay there to the narrative of God's reconciling love in Christ. And in that latter narrative of God's reconciling love, we are forgiven. We are forgiven of our sins so that we might learn to become holy through lifelong repentance and forgiveness. And not only be receivers of forgiveness, but be forgivers. That's how we transform the world. We be people who act like God. We pray it every Sunday. We pray it every day, maybe. Forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who have trespassed against me. One narrative exchanged for another. One kingdom exchanged for another. Darkness for light. Death for life. That is our end. Despite the darkness of the depths, the psalmist leans forward toward God, toward the God he knows as his sacred anchor. The God who in Jesus chooses to love us and to forgive us and to redeem us. The one who invites us all into a new script, a new story, a new life, a new total way of life marked by his lavish grace. So this morning, you guys missed it. We baptized Thea this morning in the waters of baptism. And for us now, it's for you, it's a reminder. That's why we leave it up here. It's a reminder of your own baptism. So remember that God met you in these depths. The deep of this water here, God met you. He met you in your deadness. And he tethered your life to his and he raised you up. He pulled you out of the depths to new life. So what does Psalm 130 and this gift of God as our sacred anchor, what does it call us to practice? It calls us to practice anchor faith. Anchor faith. Several years ago, I suffered, and I say I suffered, and I went on a sailing trip to the British Virgin Islands. It was, it was very tough, but some people have to do it, and I felt called to go. So I went, I was there with some other Anglican clergy, and uh, on that trip, we were learning a lot about sailing, kind of a crash course. Uh, nothing was left up to us, of course. There were people there with real skill and knowledge. But we, uh, we were kind of learning the ropes, as it were. And one of the key aspects that we learned about sailing uh, is the anchor, is anchoring. It's so vital. And not only just the, the anchoring and how you do it, but also that your anchoring system is adequate for what you may face out on the seas or out there uh, in that beautiful environment. Because nothing is worse than being stuck on a boat and high winds or a great storm for 48 or 60 hours and not having anchor faith. Not having anchor faith. We were instructed, now we didn't face anything like this, thank goodness. We were instructed that in order to reduce fear in those sorts of situations and be able to sleep at night during a storm, you want to know that you have an anchor that will keep you safe. That's not going to be dragged across the floor of the ocean. You want to know that you have an anchor that grabs and it holds and it's sure and steady. 
So anchor faith is what the psalmist calls us to practice. Patiently waiting on the Lord as watchmen wait for the dawn. As watchmen wait for the dawn. We've already discussed patient trust in a previous sermon in this series. O Christ Church, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord, for with the Lord is his never-ending, unfailing, loving kindness. And with him is full and plenteous redemption. The darkness of your Lenten pilgrimage has nearly reached its end. The light of dawn is coming. The light of the Easter vigil is coming. It's almost here. Jesus is coming, and he brings with him the resurrection. He brings with him resurrection life, the life of God's new creation, kingdom, full redemption. Not one square inch of your life left unredeemed. Not one square inch of this world left untouched by his grace. That's good news. This is Passion Sunday in the, in the long history of the church. We look to the death of Christ on this Sunday, even before we get to Holy Week. This is good news, Christ Church. This is the gospel. That Christ entered our brokenness to tie you to God's anchor so that you might be pulled out of the storm. May he give us all the grace we need to have anchor faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.